I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. Canada has welcomed the digital economy like few other countries, but we are still reliant on physical identity documents to access government services or complete high-value transactions. Interact is working to address this gap and make a secure, convenient, and privacy-enhancing digital ID ecosystem a reality for Canadians. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about flying an X-Wing than I do about flying an actual real airplane. And that's kind of a problem. So that's why I'm inviting really intelligent people onto this show to explain things to me like I'm five. The world was shaken when Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed last week, killing all 157 people on board, including 18 Canadians. Just six months earlier, a Lion Air flight crashed into the Java Sea in Indonesia, killing 189 people. Both planes were of the same model, the Boeing 737 MAX 8. Canada has since decided to ground the MAX 8 jets. This safety notice restricts commercial passenger flights from any operator of the Boeing 737 MAX 8 or MAX 9 variant aircraft, whether domestic or foreign, from arriving, departing, or overflying Canadian airspace. But for the average Canadian, many questions are now coming to mind surrounding aircraft safety. To help us out understanding all of this, I have Larry Vance, a former pilot and former investigator with the Transportation Safety Board of Canada and the original author of the Transportation Safety Board of Canada's Manual of Investigation Operations. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. Just to start off, what do we know about what went wrong last weekend in the plane crashes outside of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia? Well, we know it was a Boeing 737 MAX 8. We know that it crashed within minutes after takeoff. We know that uh, after takeoff, there were control difficulties that the pilot reported back to uh, air traffic control. And we know that the aircraft did some oscillations and that it eventually went out of control. We know the weather was good, so that wasn't a factor. So there was something wrong with the controllability of the airplane something that the pilot could not control. And we know they crashed at high speed at a high rate of descent. And we know, of course, that everybody was killed in the crash. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell me about that uh, 737 MAX 8 plane? What what makes that a a unique or different uh, plane? Well, the Boeing 737 is an aircraft that's decades old. It was... uh, originally started flying back in the 1960s. But since then, of course, it's been modified many, many, many times over the years. They still call it a Boeing 737. The modifications have been very, very extensive. The Boeing 737 uh, of today, the latest version, the MAX 8 is a basically a fly-by-wire airplane. It's uh, highly computerized with a glass cockpit. They put new engines on it. And when they put the new engines on, the new engines have cowlings that are quite a bit bigger than the old ones. If you know the shape of a Boeing 737, you know that the engines are down under, in the original versions, the engines are down under the wings. And they they were kind of low hung to the ground. Uh, When they put these new cowlings on and the engines being so much uh, bigger in diameter, they got too close to the ground. So they actually had to move the engines 
on the wing, and they moved them forward so they could move them up to provide more ground clearance. And when they did that, they actually stretched the fuselage a little bit, or at least they moved the, the nose wheel ahead by a few inches and so on. All that to say that in the end, the, the uh, flight characteristics of, the, of this new airplane were slightly different from the previous version of the 737. And that's pretty significant because mm -hmm. when the flight characteristics change, the way that the pilot feels the airplane flying is slightly different. In order to compensate and make the airplane feel like the old airplane, they had to put a new system in, and they called that system the MCAS. Uh, probably uh, a lot of your listeners have heard of this MCAS. And it's a supplementary system or a, a system that... Uh, that is designed when the airplane is flown on the very edges of its flight envelope, like not in normal flight, not in normal takeoffs and landings and cruising along and so on. But these airplanes have to fly, have to prove that they can fly at the very edges of their control envelope. And at these very edges of the control envelope, this new airplane had a tendency to get too close to what they call an aerodynamic stall. And that is that the it would reach an angle of attack where the lift on the over top of the wings, the lift comes from the top of the wings, that lift could disappear suddenly when the airflow would break down. And so in order to prevent the pilot who would be hand flying at these critical times, uh, in order to prevent the pilot from reaching this critical angle of attack, they put this computer system in that could move the tail uh, deflect the tail and cause the nose to drop down some, in other words, to keep it away from this critical angle of attack. What they, what they could have done is say, okay, to the pilots, this system is in your airplane, here's how it acts and here's what it does and here's how to overcome it if, it, if something happens to it, here's how to turn it off. Boeing uh, decided and the FAA allowed them to uh, certify the airplane without telling the pilots that that system was in there. Now, you could say, why in the world would they do that? That's a good question pilots are asking. But the, the rationale that seems to be what they, uh, what they had in mind was there are all kinds of sophisticated systems in airplanes that they don't necessarily train the pilot uh, about. When I started flying and, and through all the years, most of the time, when, when the airplanes that I flew, geez, you, had to, you almost had to know the torque on every nut and bolt in the airplane. And as airplanes got more and more sophisticated, <laughs> yeah, as airplanes got more and more sophisticated, your, your, your head bone couldn't handle that. You know, there's just too much information for the pilots. And, and so it started to evolve back in the 80s and whatever, in the 90s, where it said, you know, if it's, we, better, we better cut back on some of this stuff that we force the pilots to learn because we're just uh, cramming their heads full of stuff that they need not know. And, and so this new system that we have falls into that philosophy to say you don't need to know about that because it operates on the margins and you're never very unlikely to ever encounter it ever in your flying career. So we're not going to uh, we're not going to burden you with that. Now all of that works up to the point where it's working a hundred percent with no faults. Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 is the second deadly crash involving the Boeing 737 Max in less than five months. In October, a Lion Air Boeing 737 Max 8 plunged into the Java Sea off the coast of Indonesia, killing all 189 people on board. 
Now, what seems to have happened here on these latest two accidents is that that the system had a fault introduced because it works on the airplane telling it what the angle of attack is. There's a mechanical little wing, if you will, on, <clears throat> on the side of the airplane that measures the angle of attack. When you put the nose way up, it stays level and it measures that, uh, that angle and tells the, uh, the computers and so on what angle the airplane is at. So, and that's how the airplane and this, com- this uh, computer system decides when the nose is to be bunted down a little bit. The problem is that that system had a default, a defect in it, and the defect was telling the computer, you're at a stall angle, I'm going to put your nose down for you. And so the software, it's called MCAS software, said, oh, I better get the nose down, and it can actually force the nose down. And then the pilot counters that by, by uh, pulling the nose up and, and trimming it up. And then a number of seconds later, the MCAS software kicked in again and tried to force it down again. Uh, and he said, no, no, i got to climb. After a few seconds, the system says, your, your nose is still too high, and it pushes again. And eventually, unfortunately, the, the pilot lost that fight with this software. Is it the case that uh, a pilot who's, who's flying one of these planes is, is checked out on every kind of, or certified on every kind of plane that they're flying? Yes, absolutely. If you go to a new model airplane, you have to be trained and certified, and and, uh, and you have to have that endorsed on your license for any airplane over 12,500 pounds. So any airline-type airplane, uh, that's a, it's, it. it's brand new. Now, there, there are exceptions to that, of course, and that's what you find here for the, for the uh, Boeing 737, and, and you would find the same thing in the Airbus fleet, the A320s and so on. If you move up a model number... Um, or a, a version number, not a model number, a version number. If you move to the uh, to another model of seven Boeing seven three seven, you don't have to start over. That's why that's why um, it's so attractive from a financial point of view to to continue to upgrade these older models of airplanes. And even though even though at some point you could make the case that it becomes a brand new airplane. Um, you can you can um, save a whole lot of money by just uh, um, having your pilots move up uh, one model number, and then they get the minimum amount of training that it would take, uh, like differences training, if you will. What's the process in Canada for a new plane being certified uh, as something that that can be flown here? Well, all airplanes have to be certified by a by a certification agency. Let's talk first of the Boeing. Boeing aircraft are made in the United States primarily, and they're certified by the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States, the FAA. They take the lead role. If this was a, a Canadian uh, designed and built airplane, like the uh, uh, like the Bombardier airplanes, then Transport Canada would be the lead. Um, the Airbus, for example, are primarily designed and built in Europe, and the, uh, is, their European agency takes care of that. So, but there are international agreements that say that if one of these uh, major certification agencies certifies the airplane, then the others basically accept it. The the there are opportunities, of course, for let's say they talk about these Boeing airplanes. Canada would have been involved in the certification process. They would have followed the FAA certification process, done their own assessments. They would have made sure in their minds that the aircraft was certified according to the proper standards and they would have accepted it um, 
they take they take the United States certification as their uh, final document, but they have they're a player all the way through. Um, so, what kind of questions do, do does a situation like this raise about automation in aircraft? You were talking about it that over time we've seen these uh, planes become increasingly complex and with less and less of that information uh, on the complexity being given to the the pilots just for the sake of um, what one person can hold in their head. So what what kind of what kind of questions do we have about automation in aviation? Automation is a big deal. It's automation is is on the one hand is is the way of the future and it's the way to go. It makes airplanes a whole lot safer and a whole lot more efficient. But on the other hand, automation causes complexity that uh, you know is is starts to challenge the capacity of people to understand it all. And the more automated that the airplane becomes, I think that the less that the uh, that the pilot has that hands-on feel for it all. There are cases where automation uh, could have saved the airplane. I'll give you a good example. Air France 447 years ago. Uh, for various reasons, the aircraft got into a stall condition, an aerodynamic stall condition at high altitude, and the pilots thought that the airplane was nosediving down, down and down and down, when in fact what was happening is that the nose was too high and it should have been bunted over uh, like uh, what happens when this MCAS system takes over in the 737. The pilots kept pulling the nose up on that Air France airplane until it went down through 30-some thousand feet and crashed into the ocean and killed everybody. If that uh, MCAS system had have been on that Air France airplane and had have operated automatically, it probably would have saved that airplane. What does this mean for pilots? How are pilots reacting to this? Pilots want control of, of, of the airplane, the bottom line. Uh, if, if the pilots had their way, and they want, and they need to put one of these MCAS systems in an airplane to make it certifiable. Pilots want to know about it, and they want to have the equivalent of a big red button that says, "If anything goes wrong, push that button, and that system is turned off." I, I, I have control. Uh, pilots don't like it when things operate in the background without their knowledge, and there's a good and valid reason that the reasons that they don't want that to happen, because exactly because of what just happened on these latest accidents. Canada has joined the list of countries and airlines who have grounded the Boeing 737 MAX 8. Um, were you expecting that? I think that, uh, yes. In the end, the way it evolved, it was it was inevitable that Canada would join all the other countries. I know that, uh, that early on I was asked a lot of questions about why Canada didn't jump first and, and ground the airplanes and why they in the United States were the last ones to come come to the table on that, if you will. Uh, the uh, there's there are systems and procedures in place uh, when an accident happens that you're supposed to follow, and I think Canada and the United States followed those uh, properly. I think that that uh, as more and more information became available from the uh, accident in Ethiopia, it became more and more clear that. Uh, that the right thing to do would be to ground these airplanes, uh, not only for technical reasons, 
but for uh, just for public relations reasons, I don't think there was uh, a lot of enthusiasm among the traveling public to have these airplanes keep flying. And so, as a final question, what would you say to Canadians who might be fearful of getting on one of these aircraft? Most certainly, when this aircraft comes back into service, it's going to be a safer airplane than it was when it was grounded. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about that. I think that that what needs to happen here. These these airplanes will be put back into service, and they will be safer, and they'll have a long and illustrious uh, flying uh, career ahead of them, all these airplanes. They'll sell them by the hundreds and thousands probably, and it'll be a workhorse for many years to come. But what has to happen here is there has to be an investigation into how this airplane entered service uh, as it was put into service, the design of this system. How did that happen that that the system that is supposed to keep us all safe had flaws in it uh, at the FAA in the United States and uh, transitioning over to the to uh, Transport Canada, to the Europeans. Everybody agreed that this aircraft could be certified with, the, with this MCAS system, the way it was designed and operated without the training for the pilots and so on. That's not right. And, and where we have to get to from a safety perspective is figuring out what went wrong there what needs to change in that system in order, uh, in order for that not to happen on, again on this airplane or any other kind of airplane. Larry Vance, thank you so very much for your time today. You're most welcome, sir. The age of the personal check is coming to a close. While tools such as Interact eTransfer have largely taken their place for personal use, many businesses are still reliant on checks. 54% of businesses believe they are spending too much time on payment processing. What will it take for companies to finally ditch the check? Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.